Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough for you if they don't. Today is uh, Thursday, uh, October the 3rd, 2013. This is episode 1220 of the Survival Podcast, and i got a good one for you today. Dan Haight, author of an emerging uh, science fiction series called Flotilla, is going to be on with us in just a bit. Uh, to talk about that in the next book in the series known as Iron Mountain. Before we get Dan on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you and help make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is BulkAmmo.com. Hey, if you're going to be an effective gun operator, three things, three things you got to have. A gun, ammo, and operator training. If you don't have those three things, you don't have an effective gun operator. Ammo is critical. You can be well-trained and have a gun. What are you going to do? Throw it at somebody? An overpriced club or something you can pawn for some money is all you have if you have a gun without ammunition. So you got to have ammo. you got to have ammo to, to run your gun, to train with. you got to have ammo to run your gun if you need it. The way to get it in bulk at the best price you can find online available today is at BulkAmmo.com. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. A sponsor that's been with us for going on five years. It'll be five years uh, this January or February. I'm not sure which month it is. Coming up on their five-year anniversary. Most, most podcasts don't last five years, let alone the relationship between a podcast and a sponsor going on five years. It's just awesome. And it's because they do such a good job of taking care of you guys. They have everything you need for your prepping needs. Plus, they have this amazing program. It's called their Discount Buyers Club. It's $49 one time. You get discounts from them for the rest of your life whenever you order from them. But if you uh, are a member of my support brigade, you actually get that membership for free. Effectively, that makes your first year of the member support brigade cost a buck. That's how, how great a deal that they offer you. And they do sell that membership every day to people who pay for it just on the value alone. And you can get it for free if you're a support brigade member here. That says something about how well they support the show and for how long they've supported this show. Make sure if you're going to buy from Safe Castle Royal and you're a member of the support brigade, you get your discount. Same with Bulk Ammo. They have a discount for you as well. Most of our sponsors do. It's a good segue into the MSB. Hey, you want discounts like that to other great products as well? You want insider uh, video of uh, Week in Review from me uh, and the antics that are going on here at the TSP Homestead and a lot of other great stuff? Join the member support brigade. It's at 18.3 cents an episode. That comes out to 50 bucks a year. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you guys qualify for a discount. Again, doesn't matter if you're active duty or prior service. Send me an email with about two sentences. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if you're prior service. And I'll send you back a discount code to thank you for your service and give you a discount on the support brigade. Please do that before, not after you join. Anyway... Uh, with that wrapped up, I also want to get in now to our uh, our history lesson of the day, episode 1220. So what was going on in the year of 1220? The Mongols invade Abbasad, Kapithia, Burka, and Samarkand are taken. So the Mongols continue to move to the west. Um, in fact, the Islamic lands of Central Asia are overrun by the armies of the Mongol invader Genghis Khan, who lays waste to many civilization and creates an empire that stretches now from China to the Caspian Sea. However, he fails to destroy the strength of Islam in Central Asia. 
So it's a toehold for the Mongols as they look further to the west. So those armies are massing, and most people in the rest of the world are just not paying attention at all. What's going on in England? Um, trial by ordeal is abolished in England. So up until now, there were trials where they would say, well, if the guy's innocent and we start torturing him, God will save him. And if God doesn't save him and he dies, then he was guilty. There was actually a time in history where people thought this was acceptable. Um, it's no small part to the fact that we know that um, we had a lot going on in England to gain rights. And you'll hear more about things like the uh, Great Charter of 1225 in an episode later next week where the Magna Carta is instated. But a lot of the authority and complete, they called it serfdom, but it was slavery. Mass slavery is being questioned by people uh, and being forced. And rulers are starting to have to recognize individual rights at a higher level. There's a parabolic bell curve over time where that happens and then rights are lost and rights are regained and rights are lost. Uh, unfortunately, we're at the top of that bell curve in, in dissension right now, and we can learn from the history of the past how dangerous that is. Um, again, here you're seeing a case where people are fighting simply for the right to an actual trial versus just being tortured to death with the belief that God would save you if you were innocent. That's uh, it's pretty sick. And we have this fantasy world that we live in today where we think many of the things that happened before can never happen again. There's definitely many things that should never happen again, but the day you believe they can happen is the day that they become possible. So um, just think of that as you watch our current society head toward what I consider financial oblivion, and usually financial oblivion is accompanied by tyrannical uh, rises in power. It's going to be up to us to continue to fight for liberty now versus try to regain it once it's lost. And with that, folks, I'd like to say, hey, Dan, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you very much, Jack. I'm telling you right now, I'm so glad I've never had to pick you up at the airport. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard of that before. Anyway. <laughs> You've never heard that one? No. <laughs> okay, just checking. That's like the bald guys that walk past the haircut place and always ask how much a haircut is. <laughs> uh, anyway, man, um, we're here to talk about your uh, your novel uh, flotilla. Yeah. And uh, before we do that, though, could you just tell people a little bit about your background? I mean, most people that do cool things like write books or whatever it is we talk about almost never start out like when they were little kids. I want to grow up and write science fiction or something. It's always like a roundabout way they come to it. And well, I think it's I, I will say that I wanted to be a writer when I was okay. twelve. I couldn't make a dime at it. So, you know, I went to I went to IT because that's something I could make a living at. So uh, but uh I was gonna mention to you I know I don't know if you saw the news yet, but Tom Clancy died. Or at least he uh they reported that he died. No, I did not know that. Yeah, they yeah, just came out. And yeah. actually, reading about his life story, he was an insurance salesman. And he was banging away at his novels at night because he loved writing so much. That's what he was doing. So uh, I always think about that. Every time I kind of get down on myself, I go, well, even Tom Clancy had to sell insurance. So, <laughs> so I mean, how did, you, how did you end up eventually you know, pulling off becoming an author? Um, that was something I went away from. 
had a living, you know, made a living and stuff like that. The older I got, I was like, Dad, I want to write. I, I, I have to write. And so I would be constantly banging away throwing stuff out there, but I never published anything. Finally did, and I was blown away with how much everyone enjoyed what I was writing. And so I said, okay, well, I think it's time to re- revisit this. And I had this novel series that I was batting around called Flotilla. And so I committed 2008 to writing the first draft. And uh, then from there, it was just kind of a process of, okay, what's the next step? What's the next step? What's the next step? So very cool, man. So let's get kind of stuck into it, as my old British uh, uh, business partner used to say. What exactly is Flotilla all about? Okay, so the Flotilla series is a dystopian fiction story, the same genre as uh, Hunger Games. And this is a story that takes place on an ocean-based community off the coast of Los Angeles. The main character is a boy named Jim Westfield. He's 15 years old, and uh, he's actually an unlikely hero that comes with his own bit of baggage. Uh, He's a recovering teen alcoholic. He's got a chaotic and dysfunctional life on shore with his mom. And she's kind of had enough at the uh, beginning of Flotilla. She sends him to live with his father on this experimental colony off the coast, raising fish through a process called mariculture. So as Jim navigates life on that colony, he's forced to accept some harsh truths and harsher circumstances. Those difficulties prepared Jim for a nationwide terrorist attack that caused Jim, along with his sister, to become the target of drug dealers, pirates, and uh, marauding DEA agents. And uh, their escape from the meltdown of both the Colony D and the United States is the introduction for the end of uh, the first book, Flotilla, and the the introduction for Iron Mountain that comes out here in November. Okay, so that second book's not out yet? Not yet. Coming in here in a little over two months, a little under two months, excuse me. So, I mean, you describe this as like a dystopian fiction thing, Mm kind of like Hunger Games? I would say that's the closest genre. It's somewhere between science fiction and dystopian. So the person that says, like, you know, I didn't like Hunger Games, are they going to, you know, because, I mean, I've read, you know, science fiction books I like and don't like. So mm-hmm. is it is it like Hunger Games or is it just? No, 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 no. Same genre, right? I mean, if you okay. come up to me and say, I hated Hunger Games, I'm like, I'm, I'm, uh, my response is, I'm right there with you. I hated it, too. Because <laughs> okay. I thought it was unoriginal, to be quite honest. I mean, like. I read it and I'm like, oh, this is great. The first time I read this, the first, when it was called Long Walk by Richard Bachman, ah. uh, I got r- really irritated because I was like, I read this thing. I'm like, where's the original story? I'm not seeing anything cool here. And a friend of mine kind of hit the nail on the head. He goes, look, this is science fiction for kids who like Twilight. This is not original. It's not <laughs> supposed to be. Just enjoy it for what it is or hate it for what it is. Either way. And I said, yeah, exactly. Um, so no, it's not uh, it's not like Hunger Games. It's dystopian fiction, which is the same genre, but this is a completely separate story because this kid, you know, he's a real person. I wrote I write real stories for real people. That's the essentially what I what I, the message I try to communicate. And so when I read the Hunger Games, I didn't feel that there was anybody there that I that I believed in as a hero. Uh, so I wanted to write a kid who really uh, you wanted to get to know, you wanted to cheer on, you wanted to smack him around. And you want him to, you want to recognize that he's going through some real stuff and he's got real challenges. Uh, but ultimately, he's a human being. Gotcha. I mean, it's been real common, I've seen, in a lot of um, fiction in the whole kind of prepper world, survivalist world, that people often base characters on 
real characters. It's not a you know direct biography or anything, but when they they write the story about the gristled old marine, they have a person they know in life that that is that person, and they base it on a lot of things to do with that person, or they make the main character maybe a little bit about who they were 20 years ago. Um, is there anything to that with this? Then with this this young person you've you've created, is he based on anybody? Um, he's ba- I mean, some elements of his life are based on stuff that I've experienced personally or I know people who have experienced personally, but he's not based on a single person, no. Uh, I don't think that's honest, to be quite, honest, to be, to be quite <laughs> frank. Uh, I think that it's uh, – I want to write books that people really want to read, and I don't think you can read this book if I, if I write you my life story uh, because who am I, right? Uh, so Jim is, Jim is, the, is a, 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 a conf- I should say, a mix of a number of different elements – uh, ultimately, to be authentic without and still retaining some originality unto itself. Okay. Yeah. Um, you when you pitched this to us uh, to have you on the air, you told me that uh, Flotilla was the ultimate prepping and survival story. Exactly. Um, let's hear you back that up. Okay. So the point of prepping and survival is this, and you and I believe you know this, and I think your prepping audience will get it too. Prepping and survival is based on the capacity to act when bad things happen, right? Uh, I'm sure you've read that, uh, that uh, uh, essay on sheepdogs, uh, the, the comparison of sheep, sheep, sheep wolves, and sheepdogs. I, I can see the book on my shelf from here. Exactly, exactly. So you know, you know the, uh, the book and the essay I refer to. I can't for life of me remember the lieutenant's name uh, who wrote it. But uh, essentially that's, that's kind of was, a, was an inspiration for me, writing Flotilla. Uh, the reason why it's about that is because Jim has to go through that hero's journey and ultimately come through the first through the, the process of the entire book, come to the realization that he must act to survive and he must prepare to survive. And so that actually makes it the ultimate journey because the vast majority of the time, preppers and survivalists are faced with such a tremendous amount of scorn from people outside of that community who do not understand that basic survival truth. So this book really kind of takes people who are uninitiated, who don't completely buy into the prepper mentality, and say, look, you don't have to believe me, but look at this kid. He really had to go through something, and he ultimately had to accept that he had to take on that survival mindset. He had to take on the ability to act, or he was dead. So, So, go ahead. No, that was, that was essentially the reason why I call it the survival, the ultimate survival and prepping adventure. Because preppers, and, and you know this to be true. I mean, I'll tell you a story here in a second about how I got to know you personally. But preppers face that uh, disrespect from the from the the vast majority of uh, the population, right? And I say that because uh, I was contacted by a uh, TV show down in Hollywood <laughs> who is interested in seeing, in uh, interviewing preppers in the Los Angeles area. And so I threw it out there. I go, hey, any preppers want to want to uh, be on television? Talk about the, what they do. And I got so much crap over it. But they mentioned you specifically. They yeah. said, oh, God, have you talked with Jack? He got totally into that. He got totally burned by them. I said, okay, all right, well, let me go talk Yeah, to they Jack. never actually got a chance to burn me because I basically, if you're talking about Doomsday Preppers or any of the I don't know what the actual show was. Another production company, but they said National Geographic's so a draw your yeah, own. Yeah, it's probably them. I've told them to, uh, in no uncertain terms, f off multiple times, and they, 
right. yet their casting people continue to come back to us, and it's like you don't pay attention. And it is because they are so disingenuous with the way they present prepping. They're, it, it's, it's, to them, it's just another show, like extreme couponing or some crap. They don't care whether it's true or not. They just care, can I sell advertising for this show? And yeah. it, it, it's, it's, it's crap, and I've advised people. That's probably why you heard my name. I've advised never work with these people. And I've said if, if I ever think somebody puts something together that's legitimate – then, you know, I'll give it my endorsement, but until then, I wouldn't talk to any of these people. Well, no, I mean, but see, that's the point. That's exactly the point I raised back to them. I said, look, nobody's trusting you. You, you yeah. guys don't respect OPSEC. You guys don't respect preppers because you make them look stupid. So here's an opportunity for you to address that challenge. And I, I lined the whole thing out. Here's what people think of you. Here's how I think if you were responsible, you should address this. And all I got back was radio silence. And I said, "Okay, well, we gave that a, we gave that the college try. Uh, I I thought your intentions were, were uh, pure, and I gave you a chance to prove that. But I guess a bluff had been called." <laughs> yeah, and they tell you whatever you want to hear too. Oh no, we're different this time. Well, no, you're not. Anyway, um, <laughs> I so, know. Well, again, they got a job to do, and that's fine. But that's not the purpose of prepping. And so it, that's it's why I, it's funny that's how you found out about us, though. Oh yeah. Well, no, but it's fun. Well, I mean, I thought that's I got to tell you that story because you you would be one of the very few people who are in a position to understand it. But that's yeah. why I come back to um, the job of flotilla. One of the things that I'm doing with, with and talking about prepping is I say, look, before you talk about the bunker, before you talk about the supplies, start with the heart. What is the heart of every prepper? Every prepper is a survivor. They understand the need to act. But if you're a person who navigates life with a need to act, and you are in a community of people who do not get it, right? And some of them could be friends. Some of them could be loved ones. Rather than trying to make the case, Flotilla is there going, you know, here, just look at this kid. He had to kind of take on that survival mindset too. And you wouldn't necessarily call what he went through stupid or, or, uh, or uh, fake or crazy. So, you know, there's, there is a way for us to have that conversation without it being any kind of, you know, big political or preachy discussion. So, I mean, in in a novel like this, I've I've read them all over the the map when it comes to things as far as being, let's say, family friendly, kid friendly. Is this a is this a kid friendly book? Is this maybe a mature kid like, you know, a teen, you know, friendly or is it any age or or, or what I'll have you or is this yeah, no, I dig what you're saying. Uh, I, I wanted to write a book that would keep you, Jack Spirico, entertained, but you would feel comfortable giving to your 12-year-old cousin and say, hey, I enjoyed this, read it. Uh, I didn't want to write anything that, uh, any blue language, anything that would uh, offend parents, and so I've written the book so that it keeps adults and jaded novel readers entertained and at the same time uh, is safe enough for kids to read. So we talk about important topics in a, a mature way without uh, without uh, talking down to and you, I don't want to pay anyone. Yeah, I understand. I understand. So how, how realistic is this thing? I mean, when it comes down to, you know, the, the plot line and, and what have you, like, so let's compare it to something else. Like, one of the guys I really dig reading, uh, totally different genre, but science fiction, is uh, Michael Crichton. And, you know, a lot of his stuff, biogenetics, bio, bio uh, research, and the science is... 
Yeah, it's it's so extracted from then the real and then taken forward into the what if. Is that how you did this, or did is you know is there are there any geographic things that are you know that is a real place and that's I chose it because it would do this or what have you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, uh, I I pride myself. I'm first of all uh, not you don't you're not going to find a bibliography in the back of Flotilla. I'm a huge Crichton fan. I got. Pretty much, I think, every single one of his titles, and I've read every single one of his titles um, at one time or another. And every single one of his books ends with that big, fat bibliography at the end, so you know what he, he knows what he's talking about. Um, and I didn't write it necessarily to be realistic, but the, you know, I, the, what I realized was the deeper I got into the writing process, I kind of hit kind of, a, kind of a moral and ethics question, and I said, well, I want this thing to be real. I want it to feel real. And so once I was through the draft, I started uh, researching different elements of the novel and, and uh, ensuring that they were real. And so that involved a lot of hours, hundreds of hours of research to find correct locations. So we, we talk about uh, Jim living off the coast of Los Angeles. You can take a walk through Flotilla with your GPS device and actually see the points on the map he visits during the course of the novel. Uh, and then we mention a bunch of other locations in the Los Angeles area, and every single last one of them are real. I invite you to visit them. Uh, and then, of course, uh, had a uh, conversation with a friend of mine who was a Lance Corporal in the Marines, spent some time in Afghanistan, and I said, look, Mike, I need you to review this novel for military hardware accuracy. And then uh, my publisher, thank God, was a master seaman. He's got his uh, uh, ticket for that. And uh, between him and some Coast Guard vets, reviewed the novel for nautical accuracy. So, yeah, I wouldn't say necessarily that I did it all myself. I don't have a bibliography in the back, but I'm proud to say that every last piece of that book, when you're talking about it, uh, we've I wanted to make sure I knew what I was talking about. Okay. Well, let's go back kind of to the whole concept of how this, this storyline started out that you've mentioned. So you've got this young, young kid um, who's sent out basically to see – Right. Um, is there a reason that he's sent there? I mean, is it like, you know, he's a bad kid that needs rehabilitation or just the family needs the money? Or, I mean, what is the, and, and when he gets there, I mean, what is the, what is the purpose of this place? You mentioned, uh, mariculture. So like, what is that? How do those things mesh together? Why, why does this guy, cause like basically what it sounds to me like is he gets kind of isolated and he has to like deal with a harsher environment. And then when he comes back, he's more prepared and, but how do you get them out there in the first place? Exactly. Well, no, but that's an excellent question. We get right into it from the from the beginning of the novel. First, like as I said, he's a troubled kid. He's a recovering teen alcoholic. He is he is, leaves rehab to be driven down to the docks by his mom, who has had enough with him, and shipped off to live on this colony where his father lives. Right. Okay. So I'm sure some people can imagine living coming from uh, from a. Uh, broken home like that sometimes uh you know mom gets tired of your nonsense and says okay you're going to go live with your dad or vice versa and ultimately you know the reason why she got tired of him was legitimate he's got a problem with alcohol and he's uh he's had uh run-ins where he's she's had to come down to the hospital come down to the probation offices and, and come collect her kid so from that perspective he's a troubled kid who's got real problems and so from that reason She's had done it, done her, done her time trying to be his warden instead of his parent, and said, "Okay, well, why don't you go live with your dad?" And uh, so we talk about that. Uh, as to the colony and him visiting the colony and things like that, that's of course where we get into the fun of fiction, uh, where we talk about fact-based fiction and a process called mariculture. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of it, or you might have heard of it at some point. 
but uh, people for years have been pioneering a process to raise fish on the open ocean, right? Like, you know, for example, people have fish farms on land, but then they've actually uh, taken that process of aquaculture and then taken it to the ocean with a process called mariculture, which is ocean-based fish farming. So with yeah. Me so far? Yeah, absolutely. I'm 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 quite familiar with it. I don't know that I've ever heard it called uh mariculture before, but uh the concept of open ocean fish farming, yes, I'm I'm familiar with it. Right, right. And you know, they're in we've partnered with uh in fact I'm partnering with uh, a marine bio- biologist right now as well as an organization called Marine Harvest uh, Canada to uh, have some people there uh, review the uh review the novels for uh, accuracy according to, you know, at least the biology part the uh of the story. But the point is, is that mariculture has been in use for years. Marine harvest, for example, exports 50% of uh, the fish raised in Canada for sale, for edible fish for sale in Canada to other places, parts of the world, and they do it through mariculture. So when I was researching it, trying to figure out what the actual correct names for some of this different technology and processes, uh, go ahead and punch it up on uh, Wikipedia. Mariculture is, in fact, what they call that process. Yeah, I'm actually on the Wikipedia page right now. Now that you mentioned that, looking at it yeah. and the different you know concepts through analogy, selfish, open ocean, what they call sea ranching, seawater oh, yeah. ponds. There's like a tremendous diversity of it. So, oh, yeah. in your world, you've created there's like a colony. So I guess like these are people that live like are they living like out on something like a like an oil platform or like an island where they're doing this off the coast of the island or what's the I'll what's the world that. and is it real? Yeah. <laughs> well, is it real? Of course, no, it's not. It's okay. not completely real. I wanted to make this as close to real as I could, but I couldn't. I don't have the money to build a community like this myself. Uh, people are trying to build uh, uh, seasteading communities and sea-based communities, but uh, I'm not one of those people. Uh, no, I built the community and the colony and the story around a decommissioned Perry class frigate. Okay, so, so it is a seasteading uh, type thing. Okay, that's what I was getting precisely. at because I've seen this done like where you know there are some. You basically kind of call them colonies or call them villages, where it's like a little island and they do everything around the coast. But this is a this is a this is a true seasteading concept. That's very cool. That's, well, that's it is, and it well, yeah, no, I know, but I wanted to define the term clearly, Jack, because since you've done the research, I want to you know give it the give it the detail because you're one of the few uh, interviewers I've ever spoke to who's even heard of this stuff before I, I started talking to you. Um, seasteading unto itself is kind of the idea that you would make autonomous governments out on the ocean, right? Correct. And I don't necessarily I didn't necessarily envision that type of universe for flotilla. I envisioned a community that's based on a corporation, almost like a company store and sharecropper model, where you've got these people buying franchises to be a part of this thing. They live on boats out there, they maintain their own nets and their own uh, uh catches of fish for sale. And but they're essentially out on their own, and they've got a little bit of assistance, but otherwise they are all by themselves. It's John Wayne time, out in the ocean. I, I like that very much because it yeah. it if there was going to be something that would prepare you to deal with uh, uh, falling apart of society, that would be the that would be the thing because right. the, it opens the person to the fact that it's even possible. I think one of the biggest risks that we have in society today, you know, people are freaking out right now because the government shut down, and I guess unless you want to go to the Smithsonian or something, it, it doesn't really matter, but yet people are freaked out about it because people can't even conceive of a world where people would have to be responsible for themselves. Yeah, well, the problem, the ultimately society, and again, it's whether it's um, – Political or otherwise, and I, I don't necessarily get it, but it just 
boggles my mind sometimes how disconnected people are from the infrastructure that makes their life possible. And I sense that I, you know, sometimes I get kind of caught up in this and people will smack me around and go, look, you got to calm down about it. But I'm like, look, you don't understand where the water comes from. You don't understand how to build a fire. You can't feed yourself. You depend on all these things. You're a leaf that doesn't know it's on the branch of a tree. Quick, which Michael Crichton novel did I take that from? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> timeline. What's that? You don't remember that line? You don't remember that line in uh, Timeline? No. Oh, too bad. Yeah, the, the historian who went back in time with the kids, he would say, if you don't know history, you don't know anything. Yeah. You're a leaf yeah. that doesn't know whether you're on a branch of a tree. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and it actually makes a valid point about people who just cannot care for themselves. They are part of this infrastructure. They depend on this infrastructure. They have no idea what it is, why it is, what it does, what happens if it gets turned off, or how to care for themselves. It boggles my mind. Yeah, there's a lot of people like that. Um, I know. Trust me, yeah. I know. <laughs> You know, you mentioned people like Crichton and, and Sometimes others. they call me on the phone and want to put me on a TV show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, don't go on there. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, there, you know, we've mentioned Crichton, and, and there's other great authors who have written, you know, books like this or similar uh, in, in co the concepts of in the whole uh, dialogue of, of somebody being put into a really tough situation. A lot of times if uh, an author's lucky one day, uh, sometimes these become movies. If we were oh, yeah. to make Flotilla into a movie, who's the star? Who's the director? And is it like Waterworld 2 or, or what? Bite your tongue, sir. No. No, <laughs> Waterworld 2. No. I've never actually watched Waterworld. All I can do <laughs> is tell people, look, I, I don't know what to say to you. I've never actually watched Waterworld. So yeah. I, the book is – no, the book's not based on it. Um Everyone keeps telling me, "Don't worry, you don't. You're not missing much." And I say, "Okay, fine." But yeah, just so you know, I I, I never I never actually watched Waterworld. You um, much. <laughs> um, and then I called into Adam Carolla. Adam was like, "Well, I actually like Waterworld," so I'm like, "Okay, cool, great." You know. Yeah. You have to recognize that once you release a piece of art out into the universe, it doesn't belong to you anymore, and people are going to kind of uh, reach their own opinions about what that means. So I'm like, "Okay, you just have to you have to let your baby go." Um, to that point, I love classic movies, right? I'm sure you're a big movie guy too. So I love, you know, Spielberg. I love J.J. Abrams. I love what they're doing right now. So uh, someone like someone like that, or they themselves, I would love to to see uh, uh, Flotilla on the big screen. As far as actors, somebody suggested very early on they go, you know, who would be a make a perfect Jim would be uh, a young Leonardo DiCaprio, and I'm like, absolutely. Now. Go go take Leonardo back in time, and let's make this thing happen. Yeah, because uh, he's not young anymore. Well, Leo, Leo's cool, but he's just not 15, that's all. Yeah, I exactly. Mean, I love pretty much everything he's, he's ever done. You know, uh, you ever you know, watch, his, watch his acting from when he started on Growing Pains all the way through, man. That guy's got some chops. Just need to find another one. Yeah. yeah. So, so um, you... Uh, you kind of covered this already, but you uh, you did uh, post this thing on survival boards. Uh, you got some flack from that uh, with from the, the with the media saying, you know, come on and like like you know, and, and did uh, did guess it didn't go over very well. Well, no, it didn't go over well. I think everyone understood, you know, where I came from. I'm you know, I'm just sitting here thinking these guys' intentions are true, and maybe a prepper can benefit from it. That was my perspective, yeah. Yeah. and so I don't think anyone. I don't think anyone really, you know, 
said otherwise. You know, everyone everyone understood what I was what I was saying. You know, but as far as it not going over well, no, they had no interest in being on any show about prepping, and so they they were very angry, but not at me. <laughs> so have you been part of that community for a while, survival sports? I mean, yeah, someone recommended it. I don't know. If, I cannot remember who it was. They said you got to get on survival sports uh, with uh, Flotilla. I said okay, cool. And so you know, I threw uh, the first five chapters of the book up on uh, up there, and you know, got a really great response, very warm response from everyone, which I really appreciate. And uh, you know, that's just been a very good conversation ever since then. So now you have. Um so how long how long has Flotilla been out? Uh, I had a first edition out in 2011 when I went back to Telemachus and we did a second edition that was in 2012. So we released that Black Friday last year and now the sequel to Flotilla Iron Mountains coming out Black Friday this year. So what's what because that's, that's where I was headed towards this uh, the sequel. So the second book will be out soon. Iron Mountain now. What's up with that title? Because I know of a real place called Iron Mountain in Pennsylvania. Is is there any connection there? No, I promise. It is, in fact, related to a real place, and the name Iron Mountain has features right in the title. That has nothing to do with Pennsylvania. But okay. when you see it, it's going to blow your socks off because there's a really cool place on the West Coast, and it's called. it has the name Iron Mountain in the title. It features very heavily into Iron Mountain in the story, but I just don't want to give it away because it's so crucial to the plot. Okay, I got you. Because the reason I was asking that is there is, of course, the Iron Mountain Report. Uh, the, I don't know if you've ever heard of that. I'm afraid I haven't, no. It was a report that was written by a bunch of basically the best eggheads government could get. I believe right. it was the 60s or early 70s. It was done at the Iron Mountain facility in uh, in Pennsylvania, government secret facility. And it was basically... What would what would be the thing that would most unify the American people? And the conclusion they came up with was an absolute catastrophe like a nuclear war or uh, oh, yeah. a threat of invasion or something like that. And basically it was a br- blueprint for how you gain absolute allegiance from your citizens and control them. And just Interesting just, that you mentioned that. Just because you you know of the genre you're talking about, and I'm on your website looking at some of the imagery, and then I hear right. Iron Mountain, I thought, wow, that just so, so it's not connected. But it's maybe interesting some of that the- you mentioned that. But I'm, I'm and no, I, I have to be honest, I've not heard of Iron Mountain or the Iron Mountain Report. But let me ask you, have you ever heard of Mount Weather? No. Ever heard of Mount Weather? No. Interesting. You ever heard of Rex eighty four? What? Have you ever heard Rex of Rex eighty four? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. How about Lantern Spike? What? How about Lantern Spike? No idea. Okay. Yeah. Why don't you watch out? Why don't you watch for uh, for for uh, Iron Mountain when it comes out? Okay. Lantern <laughs> I think Spike. Be, I think I think I'm, I I think it will not disappoint you. Ha! Huh. Lantern Spike. Okay. I see. I don't want to let that. I don't want to let that one go. I'm not going right. to give away the whole plot, but <laughs> since you mentioned it, I feel obligated to tell you. Yeah. Watch out for Rex eighty four. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Got your little antennas going now, do I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Rex 84, I, I, I'm very familiar with it. I, I just don't really want to go into it if it's going to lead to a, a plot deraveling of what you're, no, what you're no, talking. No, 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 no. But, but as long as we're as long as we're going to talk about as long as we're going to talk about Iron Mountain, I'm like, oh, I gotta, I gotta, I just gotta give you a little taste. I'm yeah. so excited. I want to so bad to talk to you about this, but I can't. <laughs> I mean, Rex 84, for people that may not know, was uh, uh, a drill developed by the United States government in 84. It was for readiness exercise 1984. 
and it laid out a lot of things that have been kind of disseminated over time and pulled apart over time that show the government not to be the nicest group of people out there uh, with some really ill intentions. And you can learn more. I mean, that's Rex 84 is highly, highly known. And uh, I would right. say both accurately and over the top uh, discussed in the, uh, I would call the conspiracy theorist community, like some really valid points come out of that. And then some completely, off the rock or over the top extrapolations as well. Right. And speaking of which, um, uh, so we're talking about that. I realized I was, uh, started to read them by John Ronson. So this, the guy who wrote men who stare at goats, I don't know okay. if you uh, saw that movie. Right. But he wrote a book called them, which is a book he wrote. It's a nonfiction book about his adventures hanging out with extremists, whether they were the KKK Muslim extremists, um, uh, conspiracy theorists, et cetera, et cetera, and he's got this nonfiction book. And so uh, some elements of extremism make it into Iron Mountain. I'm not going to go into that as well. But, uh, again, I wanted to write a book that for people who are preppers, people who are survivals, people who have spent years researching this stuff, I wanted it to be both entertaining and authentic. And so I really think you're going to be pleased with what we come up with. So who do you think would be most interested in reading? So obviously preppers or you wouldn't have even wanted to be on this show, but is there like eight, I mean, really, is it really hit the teen group or does this maybe also really hit the nail on the head for a lot of the people that maybe grew up reading, you know, before they were movies, the Hunger Games and things like that when they were in their teens and are now in their 20s and 30s. Absolutely. Like kind of like the alumni of of that genre. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, I definitely mean for those people who grew up with those games, with those uh, books and ready to graduate to something with a little bit more meat in terms of story and character development. Uh, I wanted, you know, cause God love Petra. She's not, there's not really a lot to her, right? You've never seen her like, you know, scream, get drunk and scream at a boyfriend. Yeah. I never, never watched the movies or read the books. So I'm totally out of the loop on yeah, the that's okay. I'm just thing. saying for those, yeah, for people who are hunger games readers, they'll go, yeah, yeah. Petra, blah, blah, blah. Like, well, look, I, I never saw her have a bad day, and uh, I never saw her really, you know, drunk tweet her boyfriend or, or you know, act like a crazy broad, you know, kind yeah. of. Thing. I'm just like, you know, I just you're not. There's basically a one-dimensional character, and those to me are not very interesting, right? I've read a lot of like Patricia Cornwall novels, right? The lady who did the Case uh, Carpetta series. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I read those things when I was a teenager and in my 20s, I finally had to, like, throw the books away. I said, this character is one-dimensional. Hero, 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 never does anything wrong, hero. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that because, like, I actually really like the books that James Rawls wrote, especially the first yeah. one. But there's oh, some yeah. elements in that are just so fictitious. Like, this could never be, like, a guy breaking his leg with a compound fracture and the bone comes out. And because he doesn't want to use any profanity, the guy yells, Hoover, damn, as he falls over. I would rather just have him say he screamed, you know, you know, obscenities and not yeah. say the words if you don't want to, because it's so completely ridiculous that a person under that type of a, of a, of a, a situation would worry about what the cool. issue of profanity in the middle of freaking nowhere. Of Where the only person that would hear him is somebody trying to kill him. It just doesn't make any sense. So I'm glad to hear you say well, that. Well, no, I mean, but think about this too. And this has been something that's been driving me crazy about fiction for years. Um, when you read some of the different, like, you know, I would say the, like the airport novels, the ones that people sell in airports, um, 
you've got these characters who are so perfect and they, they just lovingly walk you through their life uh, down to the type of chair. They, they always have the Aeron chair and the mirror stick $225 fountain pen and the $5,000 Omega model XYZ, whatever. I don't know. No, no, Omega. I have no idea. Yeah. But I mean, I, I call it, I call it lifestyle porn. It drives me crazy. It's like, Oh God, just, just give me a break already. I don't need to hear about, the pen he's using. I want to know why he's, what does he actually think about? What does he actually care about? I want screwballs. I want, you know, I'll be honest with you. One of my, one of my hugest, biggest influences, two people are Hunter S. Thompson and Elmore Leonard. And if you read Elmore Leonard, does he ever have perfect characters? They're always in various stages of self-destruction. And, you know, the real people, they really feel like real people who are the, the people you see at the end of the uh, trailer park in the laundry room doing their laundry and hating life, right? Yeah. And, you know, you really feel those people so that by the end of the book, when something happens, you actually care what happens to them. Yeah. So, as far as you know, dysfunctional, I, I mean, I used to read stuff like Robert Shea, Robert Anton Vincent. I mean, to give you an idea of dysfunction, oh, yeah. <laughs> people that know that name will know. Well, you know, there's a big conspiracy component uh, of the audience. So they even have their own board on the forums. And, of course, there there are two guys that collaborate on the Illuminatus trilogy. So if, if you ever want to... Folks, if you ever want to take a walk down the world of conspiracy lane, uh, that would be a place to do it. But you're right. When people are not perfect, they're far more believable. And, and the fact is, whenever you actually know a person who seems, because they're not, you know, we know that nobody's perfect, but the person that seems perfect, you also know they're fake, and you don't like them very much. And, you're and, and I'm talking about real life here, not in, in books. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, the person that has the image, my, my old business partner, uh, Neil, and we're here in North Texas, and, like, the, the epitome of yuppieism in North Texas is Plano, Texas. And he calls, he calls them Plano Man. He's like, I am Plano Man. I go work out in the gym every day, and I make uppercut-coated, you know. And he does this whole, like, you know, he's a British guy doing, like, the whole, like, up, up, upper stuffy American, you know, phony. And, and that is the person in a lot of these books. I can't think of anybody more frustrated than a British man in North Texas. But, yeah, that would be funny to watch. <laughs> yeah, he likes it here when he's hanging out with rednecks like me. It's just like the Plano Man thing. He just doesn't. You know, he's like, why are you? He's like, why are so many Americans so fake? And I guess what you're talking about when you see it in in literature, you're seeing a reflection of it. Now, as a prepper, this has a big concern for me because those very people are the ones that are going to go crazy, not know what to do, and be relying on others to take care of them. And they're the ones that are going to make the deal with the devil, so to speak, if things fall apart because they don't like. I'd rather deal with the the biker gang. Right. I know I've got a criminal. I know I'm dealing with a guy that wants to shoot me. I could shoot him back. It's the people that are completely incompetent that that worry me more because you can handle a roving gang if you have to. Handling a federal government that comes in and decides we'll fix it for you, whether you want us to or not, and them having the buy in of what I call the sheeple, that scares the shit out of me. And those people are the sheeple. Well, don't forget, dude. There's there there I, the idea of every prepper on how to deal with people who are sheep reminds me of that story about the submariner soup bowl. You ever heard that one? The what? The submariner's soup bowl. No. True story. Gent was on a uh, submarine for the first time, and uh, they're sitting down to breakfast in the mess hall, or excuse me, uh, dinner at the mess hall. And uh, as they're as they're sitting down to eat, everyone's ha- having their soup, and then all of a sudden the uh, 
submarine goes into a dive, right? 20 degrees down the de- on the bow pulse, whatever. So all of a sudden, the entire the entire mess hall is on a 20 degree angle, and naturally, uh, his soup, or I should say, his plate goes sliding down the the end of the uh, table, right? Sure. Now you can imagine what it would be like if you're at the middle of that table and you got another guy at the end and you've got a bunch of food flying down at him, right? Yep. Okay. So obviously the the the, the uh, joke, I should say, the uh, punchline of the story was he says clearly other people have been through this before because I had this guy at the end of the table saw my soup coming, he just lifted my bowl his bowl out of the way, let mine go to the floor, and then put it back down and resumed eating. <laughs> okay. And that's the kind of the point of when you talk about any type of meltdown scenario and you're dealing with people who are not preppers who are losing their mind, uh, you know, in a triage situation, I have to be, I have to maintain scene safety first. And if that means that I have to get, have to get out of your way and let you run off the cliff so I can help me in mine. Okay. That's fine. And that is the mentality many of us have. There are, there's going to be a point where we're just going to have to kind of uh, pull back, help those that are willing to be part of the solution, and let the lemmings head for the cliff. Um, right. Where you live has a great deal to do with how feasible that plan is. Though, so if you live in Philadelphia, it's a lot less feasible unless you're going to leave uh, very quickly than if you live in you know rural Texas. Um, where people pretty much take care of themselves on a daily basis anyway. So, um, well, yeah, that is true. I live in the I live in the, the Bay Area too, and so that has its own oh, yeah. its own issues. And we've we've talked about leaving to go to safer areas, but to be quite honest, um, you know, there's so many different ways that any place you go could go wrong. So I'm not necessarily certain that going to a rural location is necessarily the right answer as of yet. Well, you never uh, what know. We have Hmm? Go ahead. I was going to say, you never know what the right answer is. That's why it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's always better to have right. multiple. Well, no. What what you do in, in the best planning mode, if you can, is you have uh, more than one location you could be. Bingo. That's, that Bingo. is the, the proper plan. We call those you bug out locations space. here. But You have multiple BOLs. You have a mobile bug out. You have multiple caches. You have multiple scenarios. And you actually have multiple plans in place. And so for me, we've got scenario, we've got scenarios A through, you know, whatever to talk about, okay, this is what we do if we have to go here. This is what we do if we have to go there. This is what we do if the phones show off. This is what we do if we have computers. This is what if we do if we don't. Blah, 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 blah. And so you, but start first with the actual realistic risk. Go through what is the most likely way you are going to be harmed and come up with your plans from that. It's simple. What, in your opinion, is the most realistic threat to the nation right now as a whole as far as individual personal safety? I I mean, and I'm taking out things like hurricanes and tornadoes that are regional. Those things are not national level. If if half of the country is eradicated by the biggest storm in society, there's still another half of the country as a safe zone. When it comes to something that would affect people uh, largely anyway, coast to coast, what do you think the biggest threat we face right now is? Well, again, as far as threat coast to coast, I you know I. Uh, I think that's ultimately the scenario I envision in uh, Flotilla is multiple. I actually you can go. I should post give you the links to this. I, what I did was I created some Google Maps to show the meltdown and all the different locations it took place in. Um, ultimately, it's kind of like a cascade event. 
that's the best way to explain it, right? When you're dealing with a plane crash, it's not just one thing because that airplanes have redundancies. So you have a cascade event where one thing goes wrong and this other thing over here, which we should have caught it, didn't catch it. And then all of a sudden you've got, and then it just, it's essentially one bad piece of luck versus another bad piece of luck versus something that should have worked that didn't work and nobody tested it. Boom, 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 boom. Uh, so as far as a single threat, I, I don't see a single threat kick people. I see any number of things that just happen to catch us at the wrong time, right? Looking, for example, at uh, what's going on with um, uh, SAC and their second-in-command, I think was uh, was uh, relieved of duty. He had a gambling problem. It was in the news, I think it was yesterday. You know, stuff like that just scares the crap out of you because you're like, you know, this is the kind of stuff that people depend on, and one weak link in the chain can, can fail it all. Great. So answer the question because you didn't. No, I'm sorry. Well, I don't, what, uh, what do you, you think? I'm not, I'm not in your book. I know, I'm sorry. Nationally sorry. right now, what do you think, if you want to call it the trigger, what do you think the biggest threat to society is today nationally? I think if you talk about the threat itself, it's just people being a threat unto themselves. I think the attitude of people being willing to accept certain situations they shouldn't is the greatest danger. We are as far as threat. Okay, let yeah. me be more specific. I agree with that completely. I, that's why I do what I do. Let me be more specific. Sure. Which thing do you think has the greatest potential to capitalize on that fact? Um, pandemic, terrorism, economics, which major category of life do you think is most has the most potential to start a cascade effect? Uh, I'm voting at this moment. There's just way too many different things happening with the economy. It's just okay. be, it's becoming way too weak. It's becoming way too it's it's just becoming way too dicey. Weird. So I think that's probably yeah. Weird. Yeah. I wasn't looking to get us there. I was just looking for what what one because there are certain things that can cause and they all cause the other right. You get an economic collapse somewhere in that you're going to get severe problems with disease and possibly pandemic. You get a severe pandemic, you're going to get an economic collapse. But to me, that's the one, too, that I see as the most potential to totally derail at least this nation. And I think if this nation goes, then the rest of the world has a problem, too. In fact, I would go a little further and say that I believe the reason we haven't careened off the cliff yet is only because the rest of the world has not detethered enough from the USS Titanic enough to allow us to careen. Like right now, they're close enough. You know, we could suck them down. Um, and, and I see the rest of the world massively just just rowing their ass away from us, but going, well, we got to keep buying some debt. We got to keep doing some things with these guys until we get out of the wake. And well, uh, not forgetting, not forgetting that still the U.S. being the world's largest customer, if the U.S. economy goes down, the rest of the economy goes down with it. So that's the global exactly economy is dependent is dependent on people who are who are buying, and that's not going to change anytime soon. Yeah, I don't know. It's not going to change anytime soon. It's not going to change tomorrow. That's for sure, though. Um, yeah. But there's definite moves being made by the rest of the world to to get themselves out of a predicament where uh, if we don't buy from them, they're just as screwed as if they don't loan to us. And and that, and, and that's that's kind of my my bigger concern. Or there gets to be just a point where no matter whether they're willing to do it or not, the numbers just don't work anymore. And the math is pretty clear. Um, because what's the big the big catalyst in your book? I mean, that, that starts the first 
big thing. You, you said that was... It's interesting you mention that because actually what i got to do, we're working on a, uh, a web series right now. I'm working with uh, a gent by the name of Callum Grant. He's uh, he directed a movie called Ever Since the World Ended. Okay. I've seen it. Um, and uh, I actually had to generate the background detail on why it, uh, what was the actual catalyst. We, we kind of dropped Jim into the middle of it going, well, the attacks happened. We don't talk about why it happened. Um, but if you were, but uh, to be quite honest, the to me what I see is a number of different circumstances surrounding the economy, uh, pulling it together so that the uh, the infrastructure of of uh, the country just becomes way too uh, fragile. And so what I imagined was a scenario like the end of the Weimar Republic. Uh, for example, after the First World War, the uh, the inflation of the uh, German uh, country was just so bad that, uh, you know, they had this tremendous inflation, people were starving to death, and uh, uh, was it uh, National Socialism, Nazism, was able to pick up the pieces and kind of pull, pull everyone together going, hey, we'll just cancel the debt. We're not supposed to build, build, uh, build uh, uh, ships and tanks. Well, guess what? We're doing it anyway. We're going to go ahead and steal that money. And so, you know, ultimately when the economic pressure gets sufficient, people will take, or I should say people have the capacity to take to the streets and actually uh, take things by force, and ultimately, I see the catalyst being the the economy. And I'm sure we'll we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more when I get that uh, background detail written. I apologize if I'm talking around it, man. I haven't written it yet. All you authors are a pain in the ass like this. You guys always talk around <laughs> around your story because you don't want to give away the plot lines because none of you have it figured out. That the more you tell people, the more people will yeah. buy. Um, but I deal with that with everybody. Glenn Tate, I deal with that with uh, David Crawford. So it's nothing new. You, you guys well, are all like that. I want to tell you what's in my book. I want you to buy it. And if you just told people, like, shit, I got to know more about that, and they just buy it. That's my formula for selling books. <laughs> Come on, dude. Writing is like a bikini, right? Yeah. You don't want to give away everything. You just want to yeah, show well, it. You guys aren't wearing bikinis. You're wearing freaking, what are those things the, the uh, Muslim women wear? Burkas. Better be glad I'm not wearing. You gotta show some thigh or something, man. You can't be just showing <laughs> ball slits. I don't know what's under there. Uh, I'm just teasing you, you, man. Hey, off. I've had a great time. Tell people how they can get your book. Sure, absolutely, man. Um, the book you can you can start uh, with uh, flotillaonline.com, right? So you can go to the main webpage, f l o t i l l a o n l i n e dot com. And from there, you can go ahead and explore the universe we built over there. You can read the first five chapters of Flotilla. And then from there, if you want to pick it up on Amazon or Smashwords, you can do so. Dr. Prepper was kind of happy about not being on Amazon. He cannot stand Amazon. I said, okay, no worries. Got uh, Smashwords for a reason. Uh, and uh, from there, obviously, I've got uh, the run-up to Iron Mountain. So you can register to be a part of the launch party. I've actually given away some free stuff there. So you can register for that. And uh, so you know, from there you can find all kinds of stuff. And then if you want to catch me on Twitter at Flotilla Online, I got a pretty cool dystopian sci-fi page on Tumblr as well, FlotillaOnline.tumblr.com, and then of course the uh, Facebook page. But uh, I'm really moving toward Tumblr now. Okay, are you are you real interactive with your readers? I mean, I know like uh, I had Brad Thor here at the house a, a few months ago, and he's like that. He's really interactive with his readers. Yeah. It's the only way you can do it these days, man, because uh, it's okay for J.D. Salinger to not talk to you because he's dead. I'm alive. I don't have that excuse. In this day and age of social media, they need, you, they, people need stories that talk to them and that they can talk to. People need to, a way to interact. So I'm talking to my 
followers. I'm talking to fans on Facebook, Twitter, email. That's all awesome. I, I wish more people would realize that because it's in their own best interest, and it's good. It's good for development too because knowing what your folks are looking for next from you is often even if you're not going to give them exactly what they're looking for knowing that they're looking for anything is motivating to getting you to do the next thing and uh i've seen that in a lot of like places that you know you wouldn't think of doing it um i don't know if you're familiar with the, the tv comedy series big bang theory absolutely they do stuff like they'll put out tweets saying like we need an old apple 2c computer for a prop and they'll oh, yeah. get it yeah. donated by a member of the audience, and then they'll like have it, you know, autographed by the cast or something. And with oh, yeah. that particular one, there was uh, um, Steve Wozniak was in it as a guest spot. Oh, so cool. the person that sent the computer to be used as a prop, and and the the storyline, Sheldon's trying to get the thing autographed by Wozniak, but it gets <laughs> autographed by the entire cast and Steve Wozniak. Now that guy becomes what you call a super fan. Right, he's, he's also gonna, a super nerd. He's got an Apple II season. Oh yeah, of course he is. But I mean, he's going to tell everybody he knows about that show for the rest <laughs> of his life, right? He's, have you noticed, he's just contributed to royalty payments at, at that point. Oh, I know. But have you noticed that uh, how accurate the science is in Big Bang? That's the only reason I watched that show. Oh really? Yeah, it is. Every joke is real. It's like yes, someone yeah. knows. Well, it's someone beyond. Knows. I watched a, like a documentary on how they make it and how they research yeah. it and all. And like when you see just a random whiteboard in the background with all of like the stuff that looks like it's from a Roswell spaceship or something, they're all real formulas. They're all germane to the subject being discussed. So, and the actors obviously don't know all that stuff, but they have real physicists that, that write this stuff up and consult with them. And uh, that's a refreshing thing too in media. I'd like to see more, you know, that's probably better than I don't care what Chloe Kardashian or whatever is doing. Oh one. God, don't even start. That. <laughs> uh, no, but I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, tell you something about uh, Big Bang since we're both using Skype right now. Crack Me Up was the one episode where Leonard was trying to talk with uh, oh God, what's her name, Pira, and uh, she was uh, in the Indian right and trying to talk to each other, but uh, Skype isn't working. And then Sheldon gets on and goes. Reset your your TCP reset the TCP/IP stack, and I just started. I pissed myself laughing because I work in IT. It's exactly what you have to do. And I just, <laughs> yes, you got yeah. it. Yeah, you know. we're we're going off the rails here, but I will say one more thing about that at the end. So the actor that plays Sheldon is a super nerd. Doesn't use Twitter because he's legitimately afraid he'll break something. That's how little he knows when it comes to the tech. Uh, so it's, it's, it's funny to see like reality, non-reality converging and stuff like that. And we have gone off the rails, but again, I think the, the article or the, uh, the, uh, the novels sound awesome, dude. I wish you the best with them. Uh, when it comes to the audience buying from you, you mentioned a couple different options. Some authors do sell direct. Sometimes that's better. Is there a best way for people to buy your books for you? Sometimes it's best they buy on Amazon and leave reviews. You're trying to hit like a, a top sales thing. So is there a best way people can help you or do you just really don't care? Just buy the books. No, no, no. Well, I mean, you know, I, first of all, I appreciate you even talking to me. I mean, like some people go, why don't you say something? I'm like, first of all, I'm just glad you, I'm just glad you want to read what I wrote. You know, that's, that's fine. Uh, since you mentioned it, I would say if I wanted to talk about it, I would say grab the hard copy so that one day you and I can meet and I can sign it for you. Okay. That's really good. No, I dig, I dig signing my own book for people. I'm sorry. I'm a little bit of a whore that way. <laughs> um, but uh, 
you know, as far as uh, reaching top sales and stuff like that, of course, you know, you want to be on the top of Amazon. If everyone wants to boost me to the top of Amazon, I'm not going to tell you no. I will do. Okay. I will take my money maker as often as I have to. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, because I don't care what Doctor Prepper says. I like Amazon. I buy stuff there all the time. <laughs> Get a Prime account. It's great. You can order like six dollars worth of chili peppers from Thailand, and they have to ship them to you for free. It's awesome. <laughs> that's that's anarchism. Anarchism within Amazon. Anyway. Man, I've had a great time talking today, Dan, and uh, I will put links to your website and uh, all your social media presence and stuff like that, including links to Amazon.com where folks can get your book in today's show notes, and, and thanks for being with us. Hey, I appreciate it. I had a great time. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack, uh, Jack Spirico today along with Dan Haight, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution